Hi there, and welcome to Live from the Cyber Institute. In this podcast, we listen in on conversations taking place among ministers, church leaders, and scholars as we engage the issues facing Christians and church leaders today. We hope that this episode is thought-provoking and a blessing to you, because as with everything we do in the Cyber Institute, our mission is to equip church leaders and help churches thrive. After you listen, make sure to follow our podcast so that you get all the latest episodes from your podcast platform of choice. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Live from the Cyber Institute, the podcast from ACU Cyber Institute for Church Ministry. My name is David Knipe, and I am the Associate Director here at the Cyber Institute. And today I have the privilege of visiting with Dr. Catherine Spiller, a major in the Salvation Army from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Catherine. We're glad you're here. Uh, Thanks very much, David. Um, It's great to be with you today. Well, we are excited that you are. And to our audience, we will uh, tell you a little bit more about why I'm visiting with Catherine and her connection with uh, ACU and Cybert. And we're going to get to hear about some of the work that she is doing. Uh, Dr. Spiller is someone that I first met through ACU's Doctor of Ministry degree. Uh, She earned that degree in May of 2023. But before that, uh, she earned an advanced diploma in Salvation Army Ministry. Uh, a bachelor, a bachelor of theology degree, and then also a master's degree uh, in an interdisciplinary program that connected theology with uh, international development and a variety of really interesting things. Um, and so she's been involved in ministry in Australia for a couple of decades now in some various roles. Uh, but we're here today because discernment, a new issue of the Cyber Institute's peer-reviewed journal for practical theology, has just appeared in fall of 2023. Uh, and Catherine, you wrote an article as a part of that issue. I'm excited uh, for our audience members to hear some about it. And then at the end, we're going to be able to tell them uh, how they can access that article. So uh, let me just say thanks again for writing the article. And thank you again for sitting down with me. Pleasure. Okay, now this whole issue of discernment is one that's dedicated to a specific topic and specifically uh, the topic of disability, difference and inclusion in the church. Uh, There are several articles in it. There's a case study. There's a book review that all center around these topics. Uh, And your article is the one that starts things off. Um, So we'll get into the details in just a minute. But as we get started, can you tell us a little bit about the article kind of from a 30,000 foot level? Like how, how would you summarize for our audience what this article is about? I think for me, the first word that comes to mind is a journey. Um, The article looks at the journey that I went on with my congregation as we've sought to invite people with intellectual disabilities to participate in worship. So it explores some of the theology that grounds why we did what we did. Um, We look at some of the key themes that emerged for us as part of this process. And uh, we finally land with some practical principles that emerged as part of the process for us. Yeah. No, I think that's one of the things that's going to be really valuable for folks who read this is that that really strong practical focus. And uh, you mentioned uh, focusing on participation in the church. Uh, and, and the reason I think that that's so important here is because you're not just talking in general about participation, but full participation for people of a particular nature, people with some particular needs. Uh, and in fact, it was uh, that work that you were doing uh, in your church, in your congregation, that was part of your doctor of ministry degree and your project thesis. Um, 
as I remember the story, you were telling me that it was in your congregation there uh, that you realized that there were a number of folks in your congregation that dealt with disabilities of different kinds, uh, and that there were some things that uh, you felt like the church could do a little bit better. Would you mind uh, telling us about some of the folks there at your congregation that helped lead you into this topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the first observation that I had about my a congregation at Moorabark is that they were extremely welcoming and mm-hmm. non-judgmental towards people of people with disabilities. So uh, they embraced, they didn't mm-hmm. judge. And from my experience, that is a rare and beautiful quality uh, that I wish I could bottle yes. um, and sell on to others. But that was lovely. But in addition to this beautiful atmosphere in the church, we also found that we were attracting people with disabilities. So we found we had a significant increase in the number of people with a lived experience of disability who were turning up to not just worship on a Sunday, but also to our preschool music program that we ran Mm. two mornings a week. Uh, This raised questions for me as to why this was happening. I didn't think we were doing anything special or anything different, yet people were coming uh, our direction. This led our leadership team and a small missional group in our church to start asking the questions, well, what is God up to in this space? Mm -hmm. What is it that God is calling us to? So my engagement in the Doctor of Ministry was in part seeking to find the space to answer these questions. As I had observed people coming uh, to worship on a Sunday, I was also starting to notice that the more significant somebody's disability, the less opportunity there was for them to participate in worship. So for me, it was a desire to um, create spaces for people so that they could actually participate in worship and to develop their own relationship with God. And that was something that seemed to be lacking. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's such an interesting kind of mysterious thing how different groups find their ways to congregations. Uh, And when ministers and church leaders are sensitive to that and are noticing it, uh, then it can really create some questions. And I'm sure that our audience members can think of uh, times in their own congregational life when all of a sudden they realize people from the community, people of different ages or backgrounds or whatever are coming and they, they realize that they need to do something to be able to facilitate those folks being able to enter into the life of the church. Uh, and, and I appreciate what you're describing with uh, that need for uh, need for participation, because, I mean, one of the things when I look back in kind of the history of Christian worship, you know, some of our greatest thinkers have always said, that's the thing that we need people to do. You know, for example, Martin Luther, we were, I was just teaching about this in church history recently. He's famous for, well, we need the Bible in the worship service in German. But when you read his writings, the point isn't to be able to speak German. The point is so that the people will understand and they'll be able to know uh, what's going on. Well, in, in your paper, and this is also true in your in your project thesis with the D-Men, uh, you talk about how a lot of times in churches and organizations, when we are welcoming people uh, with different kinds of challenges that, that we recognize either societally or medically, biologically, whatever, uh, we often will use language of inclusion or hospitality. Um, But you argue that actually we need to do something different. We need to move beyond that. And the language you use is full participation. Um, Can you tell us about uh, what what are the problems with language like hospitality and inclusion? It sounds so nice, but you're saying we need to do something different. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, I guess my first response is just to say that words are extremely powerful and they mm-hmm. have the capacity to shape us and our understanding. So when I first started my project, I was grappling with the word inclusion because it's often used um, for people to think about the physical space. Mm-hmm. So inclusion can equal, can someone enter my church building? Can someone use the bathroom? So is the building accessible? But inclusion is actually far more than that. You can be included in a physical space, but still not be included in what is happening in that space. And during the coursework part of the Doctor of Ministry at Abilene, I came across the writings of Samuel Wells and Eric Carter and Brian Brock, and each of them started to contribute uh, to this dialogue on inclusion, and they began to challenge my understanding of the use of the word and what their argument boils down to is power Mm. who holds the power um we often like to talk about who has a seat at the table well people are invited to the table by the person with the most power in the room and again like accessibility just because you have a seat at the table doesn't actually mean that you're going to be included it doesn't mean that you can contribute or that your contributions will be seen as valuable. The powerful person in the room still holds the power. And often with inclusion, we don't expect to receive from the person who is being included. So Samuel Wells in his writing actually goes as far to say that inclusion is patronising and paternalistic. Mm. So while I was wrestling with all of this and thinking, well, what on earth am I going to say in my project? What am I actually doing if it's not inclusion? I was speaking to a friend of mine um, and she is a person who lives with a disability and uh, I go to her for advice quite often. Good. And I was talking to her about this and I was saying, what is another way that I can talk about this that's going to be helpful? And she actually suggested to me, full participation. And this term Mm. really struck a chord with me because I believe that full participation starts with the person. It acknowledges that person. It acknowledges they have the capacity to fully participate, that they can contribute and that they can receive. I think for me, full participation places the idea of relationship at the centre. It also speaks to me of sharing power. If I want others to fully participate in my congregation, I need to examine the power that I have and I need to acknowledge that I might need to give up some of that so that other people have the opportunity to fully participate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's one of the things that you and I've talked in, in prior conversations about is how in in my U.S. American context, we're thinking a lot these days about um inclusion and belonging and whatnot, uh, especially on matters of race and ethnicity. And there are folks who really deeply love language of uh, inclusion, and there are others who really struggle with it. And it wasn't until you were sharing your thinking with me about this that I thought that makes a lot of sense. And it was either you that said this, or maybe you pointed me to one of the books that you read that, you know, even that language of hospitality as good as it sounds, it still implies that maybe I own a house and I'm welcoming you into the house, but it's still my house. Uh, we're not sharing in that way. And so to move toward full participation is more like 
no, now we're all part of the family together. And so we share in ownership, we share in the chores, we share in the joys and the struggles. Um, and that really is quite different. So that, that's been something that I've appreciated, uh, just the way it's shaped my own thinking about things that we're dealing with uh, on our shores here and, of course, in our congregations. Um, well, so in, in terms of the kind of the, the practical side, what, what you in your project developed was kind of an, an actual worship product. You all created uh, liturgies or orders of worship that you were intending to be intentionally conscious of your brothers and sisters that live with uh, especially intellectual disabilities. Um, so would you mind giving our audience a little taste of some of the things that you developed, uh, whether it's the different activities or ways that you were modifying, changing, or making additions to traditional Christian worship practices? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess what we mostly did was to look at the activities, if I can use the word activities, practices is probably a better word, mm -hmm. that we were engaging in in the worship space. And then we were actually trying to view the participatory outcomes of those to see where the barriers were for people with disabilities in our congregation. So sometimes we would look at one of these practices and we would think, okay, this isn't bad. We can modify this and actually make this better or more useful for mm -hmm. our congregation. At other times, we were finding that resources weren't all that helpful and we were having to start from scratch to write some things. So I'll give you a few examples. So sure. the call to worship. Often we start our time of worship with some form of a call to worship. And quite often that will be a responsive call to worship where the leader uh, says something and the congregation respond. Okay. Now, often we expect the congregation will read that line mm -hmm. in response to what the leader has said. But when we started to look at the materials available for calls to worship, we discovered that often these responsive lines were different every time in the call to worship. And often the lines were long and complicated. So many people with intellectual disabilities struggle with low literacy levels. So this practice did not enable people to engage fully. So what we tried to do is when we were writing our calls to worship is to make sure that that responsive line was short. So mm -hmm. it was memorable. If I can't read it, I might have a chance to remember what that line was and be able to join in. We also added gestures or keyword signs to these lines. So now keyword signs may be something that would be unfamiliar um, to the listeners of this podcast, but keyword signing is a communication technique that uses sign language to communicate the main points of a message. So rather than signing the whole sentence, I would like a drink of milk, please, a person would sign drink, milk, and please something along those lines. So we've adapted this technique to our calls to worship, our responsive prayers, uh, and we've used keyword signs as another way for people to engage in this practice. And, and I think if I remember correctly, did you tell me that that keyword signing, that's a tool that really comes from the educational system in Australia uh, for folks that are dealing with different kinds of challenges? Yeah, so we often talk about people having multiple means of communication, and this is one mm -hmm. of those communication strategies that was familiar to some of the people in our congregation who live with intellectual disabilities. So we tried to um, capitalise 
on that and bring in something that was familiar to people. But I think it's also really great for the wider congregation to get out of their head in worship and to actually embody uh, their worship by participating in these signs. Yes. Oh, that's great. Well, one of the things uh, you mentioned was that the uh, with the call to worship, that those lines were often, they often changed from week to week. Am I remembering correctly that in your liturgies, you develop them in in sets where maybe for a few weeks in a row, there might be some elements that we, would be repeated. So in addition to being short, they could also be memorable. And then from week to week, they might not change as much as maybe some things that we're used to in more traditional liturgy. Is that correct? Yes, certainly. We applied um, repetition in in many ways while we were constructing Mm -hmm. our liturgies. Um, I certainly remember when we were practicing um, different ideas for engaging with the scripture reading, Uh, we used Electio Divina, and we actually used the same scripture reading for four weeks in a row, but we built on it every week. So we started small, mm. uh, and in the following week, as we came to reflect on the scripture, we would add the next couple of verses um, that would be the feature for that day. So, yes, certainly using repetition is a great way of helping people to engage in worship. Oh, that's great. Well, and. Uh, I'm going to ask the next question. I'm going to ask is something that's a little bit more reflective. But at this point, I want to I want to tell our audience if if you are already intrigued uh, and want to see more, the article in discernment is uh, not as long as Catherine's entire uh, doctoral thesis. But you can access that doctoral thesis if you go to ACU's Digital Commons uh, and you search for her name, Catherine Spiller. You're going to be able to see in her appendices uh, just the incredible amount of creative work that she and her team did. Uh, and I think you will be. Uh, blessed just like I was and impressed uh, by seeing all of that work. Um, well, Catherine, like I said, I, you know, you and I got to know each other through this this thesis project. And so I got to kind of watch it as you developed it, as you solved different problems, as it came to fruition. And part of that project um, asks you to develop kind of a robust theology around your topic using a variety of sources. Um, and you've already mentioned some of the names of authors that you interacted with, and, and others are mentioned also in your discernment article. Um, so I'm curious, was that material around, say, maybe the theology of disability or the intersection of theology and disability studies, was that something that you were already aware of, or was this new to you? No, I wasn't aware of very much in the area of disability theology at all. I guess I was more aware of the gaps that I was encountering Mm -hmm. as I was engaging with theological voices uh, in the other areas of study that I've done. Um, So one thing that previously had bugged me as uh, before I started my DMIN was the lack of disability thinking and theology that I was actually aware of. Now, that was probably my own fault. I hadn't gone and sorted out, but I wasn't engaging with it in my other studies either. Mm. It wasn't a voice Mm -hmm. that I was being privileged to listen to. So, for example, um, I was doing some thinking around what it means to be created in the image of God, particularly where disability is concerned. And Countless times I would come up against theologians who would craft this definition of what this means. Being created in the image of God means that we are all creative or we're all designed to be in relationship with each other, those types of things. Mm -hmm. But what I found is as theologians started to nail down a definition of what it means to be made in the image of God, these definitions often left people with disabilities out. 
they became mm-hmm. exclusive definitions um, because, okay, yes, we can say that being made in the image of God means that we reflect the relationship that God has in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship with each other. But some people have quite severe disabilities that actually limit their capacity to be in relationships like we would imagine them to be. So therefore, these definitions were starting to exclude um, people with disabilities. So as I commenced my uh, Doctor of Ministry journey, I really began to hunt around for these disability theologians, and I was very excited to find them, and I felt I had Mm -hmm. found my tribe, uh, and Mm. I'm very grateful uh, that I've been able to... um, find their work and engage with their work as part of my project. Yeah, no, it, I, I was really grateful for, I got to benefit from uh, reading your work and and learning either sometimes about scholars I'd never heard of, books of people I had heard of, but hadn't known about that particular work. Uh, and we really are at a time right now where those who are interested in that intersection of theology and disability studies, there's more and more coming out all of the time, which is wonderful. But uh, to some degree, you're one of the experts now. So who are who are some people that you would recommend to us? Are there folks that you either particularly resonated with or that you think are really important voices? Who, who are people that you would tell our audience uh, that they should pick up? Yeah, so I've got two authors that are excellent and are a really good starting point for people who are interested in learning a bit more about disability and the intersection of disability and theology in the church. Um, So Amy Kenny um, is the first one of, uh, and her book is My Body is Not a Prayer Request, A Disability Mm. Justice in the Church. And Amy takes her readers on a very personal journey as she shares her own personal experience of living with a disability. And she uses her story to unpack then what it is like to be a person with a disability in the church. Um, It can be a bit of a challenging read in the sense that sometimes what she says um, hits and you've really got to think through and wrestle with that for your own life. Uh, But it is a great book and it's a great accessible read. Um, And the other is Brian Brock. I absolutely love Mm -hmm. his work. Uh, And Disability Living into the Diversity of Christ's Body is a great starting place, which also happens to be the topic of the book review in um, this edition of discernment. But again, Brian uses his own experience to unpack disability. I won't give too much away. I would suggest go and read Ron Bruner's review um, of his work Mm -hmm. and then go out and buy the book. You certainly won't be disappointed. Yeah, I I know of it through Ron's review and from your work in it and everything I've read about it. It just sounds wonderful. And he, he's really uh, just so thoughtful, it seems, about especially helping us think about some of the perceptions that we have and then how those can end up being being problematic, which is one of the things that you've described just in our in our conversation here. Uh, well, Catherine, we are kind of coming toward a close here, and uh, we've already encouraged our listeners to uh, get a hold of your doctoral thesis, to get a hold of Ron's review. We're just we're just throwing resources out all over the place here. Um, but tell us some about uh, what you're doing now. Because my understanding is one of the ways that the Salvation Army kind of grows out of its Methodist heritage is that uh, you don't always choose where you go. You have people that move you around into different roles. And so you've been in congregational life, uh, but most recently you've been working uh, in one of the colleges. Is that correct? 
Yeah, correct. So I'm sitting in the higher education space at the moment at our national mm -hmm. college, uh, Eva Burroughs College. So we're the training institution for the Salvation Army in Australia. Uh, so I currently sit in the role of coursework coordinator, so academic administration, and I do a bit of teaching in that mm -hmm. space. Uh, and then in January next year, I've been asked to pick up the role of academic dean for our college. So yes, you're correct. Salute and go. Um, off to a new role. Well, I think they are very wise to put you in a position of leadership. Um, I, th I think you're, from what you've told me in, in other conversations about just that mix of your background in congregational leadership, but also in academic leadership, that's exactly what we want. Uh, I think across all denominations in terms of people who are who are training future ministers. And so I'm uh, I'm glad that you're there and uh, excited to just continue to interact with you as the years go on and see about how things go. Uh, well, Catherine, let me thank you again for the time that you have spent uh, in our getting to visit together once again uh, about uh, your article and about your thesis project. Uh, to our audience members, uh, I want to say that you can find some of the resources that we've described uh, online uh, for this issue of discernment. If you go to the Cyber Institute website, cyberinstitute.org slash discernment, that will take you straight to uh, the homepage where you can find all of the uh, different articles, including back issues. Uh, if you're just poking around the cyber website, if you go under the section called Reflections, you can scroll down or tap down to Discernment, and you'll also find it there. Uh, you can also, as always, find all of our podcast episodes um, at our podcast homepage, cyberinstitute.podbean.com. Uh, so, Catherine, thank you again. My pleasure. Well, and I'll ask our audience members to join me in continuing to pray for uh, the Murabark Congregation and for your work uh, at the college uh, and the Salvation Army. We are always glad to know of things that are happening among our brothers and sisters in God's kingdom. So, Catherine, thank you. And to our audience members, as always, thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening today to Live from the Cybert Institute. We would love to connect with you on our social media channels, and you can always find all of our various resources at our website, cyberinstitute.org. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on your platform of choice, then share it with your friends. Until next time, may God bless you in all that you do.